This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly, a three-way title race, a three-way race for the final one or two Champions League spots and plenty of sides still in danger of the drop. It really is the greatest league in the world. Manchester City dropped points when we almost least expected it. Just an off day for Haaland or something deeper. And is that Chelsea turning a corner? I see. Despite everyone giving City the title, Liverpool extend their lead at the top. The direct route works against pinnacleless Brentford. Lovely goals, perhaps cancelled out by three more injuries. Meanwhile, goal-shy Arsenal can only manage five at Burnley. Do they only play bad teams or do they make teams look bad? Despite being garbage all season, Manchester United are somehow in the mix for the Champions League spots. Are the first tiny question marks being put at the end of sentence over Ange Ball. Some elite finishing from Ollie Watkins and non-elite finishing from Adama Traore means Villa go back to fourth. How does David Moyes define a tight Premier League game? Should it be more than three games if you take a player's kneecap off? What is a referee analyst supposed to do? And how many of you had temporarily forgotten about the existence of Matt Ritchie? All that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hiya. Hello, Lucy Ward. Hey, Max. And good morning to Barney Ronay. Hi, everyone. The title race then, uh, Liverpool top 57 from 25, Arsenal 55 from 25 and Manchester City 53 from 24. They have a game in hand. Let's start the Etihad uh, with that draw between Manchester City and Chelsea. Uh, you said it on Thursday, I think, Barry, or I said it, or one of us did, that it would be very Chelsea to get a result here. And they, they almost got a win. They did, and they probably should have won. Um both teams missed quite a lot of chances. Uh, Erling Haaland missed two. You'd expect him to score in his sleep. Two headers from the edge of the six-yard box. Chelsea went ahead. City equalised. Some slightly fortuitous equalised. Took a big deflection. And it's easy to say with the benefit of, of hindsight, I suppose, and its outcome bias. But the changes uh, Maurizio Pochettino made on 70 minutes were maybe a mistake. Um, I thought Chelsea were kind of in the ascendancy. Cole Palmer was playing brilliantly for them, linking up the play between defence and attack. And he was withdrawn and Trevor Chalaba came on for his, I think it was his first appearance of the season, certainly his first league appearance of the season, to help shore things up at the back and that's when it all started to go wrong for Chelsea. I think the, the fact that the deflected goal went in off Chalabas, you know, neither here nor there. But, um, yeah, I, I thought Chelsea probably did enough to win, but just poor finishing. They kept, they kept creating the same chance and only scored it once and probably should have scored a couple more. Hmm. I mean, they, they, they did... They exposed the high line of City. Barney, did you see this anymore as a sort of as a slight aberration? You know, Harlan did miss buckets of chances, or 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 the fact. I just feel like certainly I and I, I suppose perhaps no one else, but I have just decided City will now win every game and win the league. And so when they don't, my eyes sort of open quite wide. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of talk about um, there's a blueprint here for how to beat Manchester City, even though it didn't involve beating Manchester City. It's still a a blueprint how to do that. <laughs> but that blueprint would involve um, City, the man who never misses, missing a lot of chances. Um, I think um, it's true that 
City faded as the game went on. Oh, sorry, Chelsea faded as the game went on. But I think in part that's to do with the way they played in the first 70 minutes, which was really intense. But I think the idea was to break into the space behind City's what is quite a risky high line. And they had the players to do it and they did it well. But it involved... Um, you know, really pressing really hard to win the ball and then making a lot of runs. And I think what Pochettino was trying to do was to go to the alternative way people talk about playing City, which is to have um, five at the back and to crowd those spaces where they attack. If you accept that your team is now tired, so City are going to have the ball. Teams so often sort of die in the last 10, 20 minutes because there are so many overlaps, so many players in those wide areas, and it's so hard to track them. So I think he was trying to you know, counteract that, but, you know, they're just really good. Um, I mean, I suppose uh, some, if there are any weak spots, it's that um, City haven't really replaced Ilkay Gundogan in midfield, who's such an important player, and I think he vaguely got a glimpse of that yesterday. He's really, he was always really good in those crunch games, really good at controlling it, really good against other good teams, and City haven't been as good as other against other good teams this season. Um, but I still think it's just remarkable when we see a blip um, in them dropping a couple of points. I agree with you. I've long since just decided they're going to win a double treble and, and that is the default option. And anything that happens that's not that uh, will be really surprising because they're that good. Yeah, I, I was watching and thinking that if City go on to win it, we may as well all pack up and go home because that was the game where could could Chelsea get a point from it? I think from what Barney says about um, Gundogan, I think he's massive because what you end up with, the way that Pep's playing at the moment, Alvarez ends up next to Rodri when they lose the ball in that sort of two central midfielders and he's a forward. And so they just lose a lot of sort of defensive stuff. So when, you know, when they lose possession and there's players on the pitch, um, Alvarez ends up as the one who goes back into that position next to Rodri. And, and obviously you know, when Gundogan would probably have done that. And, you know, they sort of missed that, I think. And I, I did the game, uh, the Everton game, and it wasn't until De Bruyne came on that they looked like they had a little bit of technical skill in that, the creative in the middle. So it's not all rosy, I think, at, at, at City this season. And I think it's quite interesting, the discourse on, on Twitter um, from the City fans who are used to seeing them, you know, sort of go on and stride on at this uh, season. They're actually sort of questioning some of some of sort of Pep's choices and you know it must be wonderful to do that only once every four seasons mm-hmm. uh, d- did you enjoy uh, I mean there was some controversy about um, the penalty award or non-award where um, I thought the ref got it absolutely spot on when when Carl Walker sort of fouled Raheem Sterling but made it look like he was being fouled but much more impressive was the the break dancing from Kyle Walker after he had been not been fouled. After he had fouled Raheem Sterling, he went sort of full <laughs> 1980s lighting up dance floor. Yeah, there was there was the worm as he went down or after he went down, I think to exaggerate the effect of the non-foul and then he, he made, shaped as if to, he was about to spin on his head, which I suspect is more difficult to do on grass than it is on a, a square of lino that break dancers use. What he did was is actually a real skill, and Grealish does it the best. Actually, as they're running at full speed, gets his leg in front of the defender and then goes down. It, honestly, that is so difficult to do, and it, Grealish has got that off to a tee. It doesn't always work for Grealish, but quite a lot of the time he did. But Walker's a little bit slower doing that, and it obviously 
for the referee. I think the referee did absolutely brilliant to, to see what he'd done, just ensure that the defender brings him down. And then you sort of keep watching it and thinking, well, if you watch it thinking one way that it was a foul, it sort of looks like a foul. And when you watch it thinking that's not a penalty, then it does. So it's one of them where it's, it's very, very difficult for the officials to get that right, I think. I thought City should probably have had a penalty towards the end when it was that sort of handball by Levi Caldwell. The, the ball hit his arm, as, but he was also pulling the shirt off Ruben Diaz's back at the time. So that's kind of two fouls for the price of one. Now, it shouldn't be a handball, but similar penalties were given the Luton-Sheffield United game last weekend, you know, for similar offences, in inverted commas. So I thought Chelsea got away with one there. Are you saying all we ask, all we ask for is consistency, Aaron? That's all we ask. I've never asked for anything else except consistency. But I always thought they referred to. Sort of, well, you want common, you want common sense at the same time, though, Marnie. Yeah. You want, you want consistency and common sense. But you can't have both, can you? No, no, you can't. I mean, that, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been struggling with baseball recently, but there's a new thing that you can't enjoy the good parts and then criticise the bad parts. You cannot. That is impossible. Apparently, it's it's this really kind of Trumpian kind of view of what life is. Um, it is either good or bad. There's nothing else. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, Jack, Jack Grealish. Um, Lucy mentioned Jack Grealish. I mean, he's um, he, the fact that he's missing um, is obviously um, a problem. But it's kind of a shame that he wouldn't be that Gundogan player. I always felt when he went there, Pep would do something with his positioning. And, you know, the endless kind of work they do um, to improve players and that he would be able to fit into. It's odd to say they lack a creative passing ball controlling player in the field. Uh, whereas Grealish has become this kind of very linear player who essentially does the same thing all the time. And I thought it was interesting having Carl Palmer on the pitch as well. I kind of feel like he's benefited from going to to Chelsea and it was essentially kind of tactical chaos. You you can be a young player and maybe spend half an hour of a game working out how you're going to play. You can, he, he has a slightly unorthodox range of skills, the way he passes the ball. I think it's been really good for him to be a team where there's not this incredibly drilled, rigid way of playing. I don't know if he'd have developed the same way at Manchester City. I, I don't feel that, I agree this, obviously won loads of trophies he's an incredibly efficient player now but has he developed the way you imagined he might do under Guardian I'm not sure and I always imagine he would fill that hole but obviously not and as for Calvin Phillips you know less said the better yeah I mean he should do because he's you know he's He's got that low centre of gravity. He can take the ball on the half turn. He can do everything that you want that centre midfield to, to do. I, I don't know if City have a buyback for Cole Palmer, but, you know, that's probably be a sensible thing in a, in a year or two, wouldn't it? Um, anyway, let's go to the GTEC Brentford 1, Liverpool 4. Barney, you were there. How was it? Oh, it, was, it was really nice. It's always nice to go um, to the, the GTEC, as we call it now. Um, it's like this amazing, it's like Narnia and there's this little door in a cupboard and then there's a football stadium behind it. Somehow they, they've managed to fit this Premier League stadium into a kind of development of executive flats overlooking the Thames. And everything's nice and it works and it feels like being Danish or Norwegian. You're, you're kind of in a world where things are small and plastic and sensible and everyone's nice. Who plays Mr. Tumnus? Is Mr. Tumnus in Narnia? Have I got my, have I got that right? Yeah, there's certainly a friendly, small, smiling guy. He does a lot of chewing. He could probably take on that that role. Um, but they were Brentford were quite good um, in this game. For the Thomas Frank was right. They were good for the first twenty minutes, um, and should have scored. But 
uh, even Tony was uh, a bit blunt. He kept, he had three good chances to shoot. He kind of scuffed it every time. Um, and the game was changed by um, an amazing opening goal where, you know, it was the Brentford moment where they've got this set piece. They're going to, Flacken is going to hoof it long. And everyone goes into their sort of prescribed position, quite central, big bunch of players. And all it took was one massive hoof down the middle of the pitch from Virgil van Dijk, which I'm sure was deliberate because he knows they must have talked about it. Liverpool are incredible on the break. They've got really fast players. And suddenly, <laughs> it was a kind of self-hobbling from Brentford. The entire team is in the opposition box. And uh, I thought Jota's header to Darwin Nunes was incredible. It was a brilliant header. Oh, it was well. sort of leaping to nod it on and know exactly where you wanted to put it and exactly the right speed. And then the finish was just outrageous. I mean, it was it was too good. He shouldn't have been trying to do that. That could have hit the corner flag. It could have gone over the stand. It was it was mental, but just absolutely brilliant. I think they call it a Vaseline in um, South America, but I don't know why. Um, but it was it was just absolutely astonishing um, and and a brilliant goal and that changed the game. Is it because you scoop the vaseline? You sort of scoop the vaseline out of the pot, and that was that was a scoop rather than a dink. I think there was a, well, you were obviously extremely a, a dink is ex- like a experienced at scooping vast amounts of vaseline. <laughs> what, what are you doing with <laughs> this course. stuff? Um, I, I know. I thought. Well, I don't know. I thought maybe it was because it makes the keeper fall over. I was I was trying to think about this. Um, but oh, maybe. I don't know. But, but not many people put Vaseline down as a sort of prank, you know, tripping hazard, do they? I mean, that's not that's not that common. So, I mean, somebody asked about, Dio Withers asked about, you know, what is the name for the goalie lob scale? Um, uh, shall we just call it the Nunes scale? But it's not a lob, this is definitely a scoop from the Di Maria Paborski at Euro 96. I think Brian Ruiz got one. I don't know. I think it's a scoop you because don't? the ball touches the... The foot touches the ball very briefly. It's a dink. You think it's a it's dink? It's a kind of, oh. it's the tiniest contact. A scoop involves kind of lifting. I thought it. he lifted it more. Borsky lifted the ball. But a dink is sort of like a sandwich, I would say. And it didn't feel like yeah, that. Yeah, it, it was okay. one perfect little bit of contact oh. as he was running. I take it back. I mean, the, Lucy, the, what's interesting is, given we constantly say Manchester City will win the title, is that Liverpool have done this and they were already missing Alisson and Soberslai and Alexander-Arnold. Obviously, they've got these three new injuries as well now, but they... They could afford to bring on Salah, Gakpo and Gravenberg. So I guess if they can be sort of lucky with who's available and who isn't. So if Bradley's available, Alexander-Arnold isn't, that's kind of okay. If Jota's out, but Salah's back, they, they could kind of be lucky that it would all sort of fit together like some perfect sort of cog mechanism. I think they've got themselves out of scrapes this season because they've got the strikers to, that, that can come on and replay. So I think if they can sort of keep as many fit as possible... I think Jota. That's that's that'll be a big blow, Jota. I mean, that was that looked pretty serious. I didn't see it first, then saw it in slow motion and realised what had happened. And that's that obviously quite a serious um, knee injury, I would suspect. But he is just a clever player. I mean, he talked about the the the, the assist for Nunez's goal, but he's just his awareness of of everything around him is is absolutely incredible. And I did I do think they missed him when when he wasn't available. I think looking at Brentford as well. I think they're missing Bermo. I think the way that they're playing, you saw against City uh, and Liverpool, if they just had somebody that could could stretch play a little bit um, in the moments where they needed it, I think particularly against City, then I think that that would have worked. And he he's the one, and Bermo for me, who who it makes a difference for, for for Brentford. Obviously, Tony has come back and made a difference, but just that pace that scares it. Just you, you, as a defender. 
you know, that City wouldn't have come onto them as, as much as they did neither Liverpool if they knew that they had that sort of threat as, as soon as they win it back. Mm. And they've got City, haven't they, in, in uh, midweek. Klopp was full of praise for Xabi Alonso this week, uh, describing him as the standout in the next generation of managers. Uh, the dinosaurs, if you want, Ancelotti, Mourinho, Guardiola, maybe me. We will not do it for the next 20 years. Okay, maybe Mourinho will. He said, <laughs> the next generation's already there. I would say Xabi is standout in that department. Of course, with Bayern losing again, might be a bit of a tug of war over Xabi Alonso. Um, Barry, Brentford have lost four in the last five, only six points above the relegation zone. I mean, they should be fine, right, given who are below them. Uh, it should be noted that this was the, the first game that Ethan Pinnock had missed for 53 games. So they shouldn't have even bothered if Ethan wasn't there. Yeah, he played 53 Premier League games in a row, uh, missed this one, and this was possibly his best game for Brentford because he he was really a, a conspicuous absentee. And they played quite well in parts, uh, but just some absolute defensive clangers and Nathan Collins, Christopher Iyer, who came in for Pinnock, and Ben Mee were all culpable in varying degrees. Who knew Ethan was such a key key component of this Brentford side? You do suspect they'll be fine, but until they're looking ahead rather than over their shoulders, they can't be in any way complacent. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I just come back to that first goal. I thought it was really interesting when you, if you froze, they froze the action and even before Van Dijk had punted it, Jota and Nunes had gone already and the Brentford players were sort of on their heels still. So clearly, um, you know, these guys do a lot of prep, don't they, for games. It was just really interesting to see. They they just all knew that Van Dijk was going to absolutely hide the shit out of that ball and it was great to see. Um, I, I just want to bind there was a, there was a, penalty here I think it might have been two there was like Andy Robertson just fouled Ivan Tony. it was like a just a blatant foul there was one in the Forest game Maxwell Corney on Nico Williams and I don't know if it's just these things happen there was also a Nathan Collins foul on Luis Diaz in yeah. the Brentford Liverpool game that wasn't given as a penalty it should have been yeah I don't know what point I'm trying to make here apart from it just seems odd that VAR doesn't see these things that are really definitely foul yeah it looked like a penalty from you know, sitting uh, 50 yards away in the press box and everybody just assumed that was going to be VARD and, and would be. Um, the thing is, um, I've given up trying to second guess the constantly changing kind of script as to what... There seems to be kind of vibes and um, decisions on what people... The, the sort of refereeing, the wider refereeing group wants to be a penalty. Directives, and we've had quite a lot of this, and we're trying to change. They're trying to sort of engineer player behaviour and also how the game flows constantly. And I think the real problem with that is that they're essentially not supposed to be doing it and kind of not really the people I would trust to do that and massively overthinking what they're being asked to do. And, and I think it's another case of that because I've noticed uh, this kind of penalty. I mean, we, we have gone from kind of micro penalties to it now seems quite difficult to actually get one. And <laughs> I just wish it would stop. Yeah. It, it, it used to be kind of a humiliation not to know the precise detail of the rules and what how, how the game's going to play like that. It was something you just had to know. But it's so difficult to follow trends and vibes and feelings of what – the refereeing massive now how they want the game to flow. Uh, I assume that this is another presentation someone's made that they've all agreed is a good idea because, um, yeah, the same things seem to be 
not being given um, at different periods of time. Now, there's another PGMOL briefing today to to um, to broadcasters. So be interested. They're always very interested. Obviously, we we that it's not for sort of broadcasters. We can't report on it, but it gives us a, a feeling of of you know what what where they're at at that particular moment in time about some of the decisions, and they, they are quite interesting to to, to listen to. Don't you think it's like a ma- It's a massive. I feel like it's an abuse of their reach like why a referee is trying to engineer how the game flows and what it looks like unilaterally just because you have a television camera and you've been given a position of authority I find it really weird and I wonder what it would be like if referees were generally slightly different types of people if they were reluctant to referee rather than being very keen to referee if if refereeing was seen as a last like, resort it was like jury it was like jury service yes. you got a letter the week before going you're do, you get a letter the week before and you're doing Nottingham Forest yes. v Wolves but, like, classically oh, a referee was like a butcher from Blackburn who didn't want to be yeah. doing it who looked at you with disdain <laughs> listen I was refereed by referees like that the whole of my career so that that is no better believe me <laughs> referees that didn't really want to be there well it's better as, as a spectator it's quite nice um the, the current sort of mania for refereeing as though you're, you're, you know, this is something can be perfected and that it's very important to the spectacle, which we're now reconfirming. Um, I find really dull. TNT Sports made great store of the fact that this was Liverpool's first league win away at Brentford since 19, um, or what was this, 1947. Right. How many times have they done it? Have they played? Four. <laughs> they played four times <laughs> in the league away at Brentford in that time. Well, big moment for Liverpool. Open top bus parade for Liverpool for that. Uh, we'll start part two with Arsenal's win at Burnley. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Dave says, as an Arsenal fan, I should be ecstatic that we've won 6-0 and then 5-0. It's a sign of great form. Why then am I sat watching these games screaming, stop using up all our goals? We might need these in tight games. Like goals are a finite resource. I think every fan feels that. Um, Imagine how many they'll score, Lucy, when they sign a striker. 29 goals in five straight wins. I'm I'm sure someone at some point will say it's only Burnley. And as we said, after the last, I think we got some criticism from Arsenal fans saying, all you did was say, yeah, but it's West Ham last week. And Burnley weren't good. But like Arsenal do deserve some credit for making these teams look so bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I do Arsenal quite a lot. So I've sort of seen over the last couple of seasons how they've been. I think that that when they went on that warm weather training, uh, I think he took all the families out to Dubai, Arteta. And I think that they've come back from that. And since then, actually, have been very, very thorough and very relentless. And I, I think they were excellent, excellent against Liverpool. I think they're confident. I think the difference between Arsenal, there's, there's a few things the difference between Arsenal last season and this season, but I think that they, they got a little bit emotional last season in terms of the way that they dealt with setbacks, the way that they dealt with the, the high parts of football. And I think they just stay quite level. And I think that's just experience of the, of the group of players that, that Arteta's got. I mean, it's fair to say Arteta hasn't stayed totally level all season. I would say it's sort of fair, no, fair to say. Yeah, he, he hasn't. But I do think, I do think the players... Um, Dealing, they do deal well with um, moments in the game that don't go their way better. They, they, they and they don't get carried away when when they're doing well. And I, and I and I think that that is a massive difference because he sort of tweaked the the balance between sort of attack and defense. And I know I know that that you know that people talk about people talk about them getting a number nine a, a number nine. But the way that Arteta plays, that number nine that whoever they're thinking of bringing in 
as well as scoring goals, has to press like he wants them to press. He has to be involved like he wants. It. Otherwise, it just it, it 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 wouldn't work how he wants. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why he's not got anybody in yet. But uh, yeah, I mean that that I think Saka is is undervalued. I do think I think that he's he's a winger that's not a winger. He's a winger that's everything. I think his creativity, his numbers are unbelievable, and you know he's obviously a a, a young, exciting player, but. I do look at I look at Burnley, and I I do think because it's Vincent Company, I think that he that you know a, a manager that speaks very well, that was a, a Premier League legend, gets absolutely nowhere near as much stick as the likes of Chris Wilder. I don't know why. I, I presume it's because that people have a lot of respect. And right at the start of the season, we all and I and we as pundits were asked, who do we think will go down? And we said. I said Luton, I think, will go down. I think Sheffield United will go down, but Burnley will be all right. Everybody, Burnley will be all right because they played fantastic football in the Championship. But they haven't been. And I, I think that that company's got away with quite a lot of criticism that he could have had simply because he's Vincent Company, which, you know, is, is probably fair enough. But I think that they underestimated the Premier League and the, the fact that they couldn't. They're basically young players playing, learning on the job. And not really learn from making mistakes and then not doing them again. Um, and I think that's been the story of Burnley's season. Perhaps he gets less criticism than Chris Wilder because to our knowledge, you are allowed to eat bread-based products in front of him without causing major disrespect. Um, uh, Barney, you you wrote a couple of months ago that Arsenal was starting to look a little predictable when they were having that lull. What have they changed? Or is it just a case of their attacking players playing well? Because... Saka's numbers were always there, but the others weren't. I think what's changed is um, in the last, since the, um, they worked really hard on their, their break, summer break. They said there was a lot of training um, and they do look refreshed. But also I think uh, in recent weeks it's been Trossard and um, Havertz have been making a lot more forward runs and going in behind. They've sort of both been doing that kind of false nine thing of making runs from unexpected areas. And they just look a lot more fluid. I know it's only Burnley and only West Ham. I don't really mean that, but um, they look a lot more um, fluid. In They had become predictable. I mean, Saka is predictable. He does do the same thing. But when he's feeling fresh, it doesn't matter if you know he's going to do it. It's really hard to stop him because he can twist and turn and move better than you can. So but that becomes really hard to stop. So he looks fresh, which really helps because the ball always goes to him. But I think they've got this, they've worked out a system where they um, they can play the players that Arteta likes. Uh, as as Lucy says, he, he wants people who are going to contribute. And they're making those runs behind, which makes them so much more dangerous. Also, Odegaard, who has looked brilliant, look, just looked fantastic all season, but not been contributing. And he's just a beautiful player to watch. Often the first 20 minutes, you spend it just watching... How can he possibly control ball like that? Like this, it, it's amazing. But then nothing much comes of it. But he's really been uh, looking uh, additionally incisive uh, since that summer break. Um, so they have momentum. So there's something in the salt-based steak that we, we shouldn't have mocked it so much. Um, Arteta said uh, on Burnley, it is a really difficult place to come, which isn't true <laughs> uh, this season at least. Um, but look, a brilliant win and they are on. Brilliant form. Uh, to Kenilworth Road, Barry. Uh, Luton won, Manchester United two. Fourth straight win in the league, five in all competitions. They're hitting form, even sort of unconvincing form. Now three points behind Spurs, five behind Villa. 
arguably with more momentum. Um, it seems mad to suggest that they are in the hunt for the for a Champions League spot, but they really are. Well, well, I don't think it does seem mad. Manchester United being in the hunt for a Champions League spot should be the very yeah, but this one basic least requirement of you know this this storage exalted club this win was far from convincing uh the game looked over after six minutes when they went two nil up two good goals from rasmus hoyland uh one the first very opportunistic the second uh a little lucky but very skillfully done and one suspects rasmus hoyland halfway through his uh 14 match goal drought at the beginning of the season would not have scored it but um, Luton really grew into the game after that Um, scored their goal uh, had several good chances before half time Casemiro should have been sent off but wasn't very lucky boy and he was uh, withdrawn at half time as was Harry Maguire because they were both looking in danger of getting sent off yeah Manchester United controlled the second half didn't get the goals their second half performance deserved. And then uh, a moment of dim-wittedness from Bruno Fernandes almost gifted um, Luton a late equaliser at that last corner. He should have kept the ball out by the corner flag, took a shot instead, and um, Luton ended up getting a corner and uh, almost scored from it. But a very good performance in defeat from Luton. Uh, to go with their very good performance in defeat against Arsenal, against Manchester City, against Chelsea at Kenilworth Road. They drew at Liverpool, and yet they somehow managed to lose against Burnley and Sheffield United at home. And they're the results that could end up killing them. Uh, So maybe they should reserve their best performances at Kenilworth Road for teams that are not as good as... Uh, Arsenal, Manchester United, Manchester City and Chelsea and Liverpool. Do you see, Eric Ten Hag afterwards, Lucy was saying, you know, I knew once I got all my players back that there'd be a plan and this would all start to happen. Do you see a plan yet? Because I can't, look, they're winning games, so like perhaps you don't need one, but I, I can't really see it yet. Yeah, I mean, the, the players the players make a difference because the, the, the good players that have, that have come back make a difference. I think they're now giving Hoyland a service that he wasn't really have, having and, and everybody blaming him for, for for not scoring. But what they decided to do against Luton is go toe-to-toe with Luton and, and went long, made it about Jules and 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 got the ball in the space and used the, the you know the players they had. But then I think they've just still got a bit of a soft underbelly though. I think that if Kobe Mainu is your best central midfielder then it's brilliant for Kobe Mainu, but it's it's probably not for a, a team that's that's going for, for top four. He just looks so calm on the ball and he deals with the ball so well when there's there's a lot of players around him. So that's fantastic for Man United's future. But you know, he shouldn't be the best performer when you've got Casemiro on the pitch. Um, you know, and he, who can be very good but also can be, you know, he should have been sent off, which you know, changed the game. I heard Rob Edwards talking about how much time was added on at the end of the game um, and then said something like, because it's Manchester United, well, because Man United were winning or whatever it was. And so, um, you know, I think Luton are unlucky, but Luton, they've got everything that you would want for a team that is fighting to stay in the Premier League. So they, they defend well at times. Obviously, they, you know, there's a couple of times yesterday they didn't, but on the whole, they defend well. 
They don't put the ball at risk in bad areas like Burnley do, playing out from the back when it's not on. Um, set pieces are good, and they've got a you know they've got a real um, camaraderie between them. And and obviously at Kenilworth Road, they, they look something like. And I, I think you compare that to sort of Sheffield, the way Sheffield United are, the way Burnley are, and they're, they're completely different animals. Um, you know, so Luton have given themselves a chance. Can I just say that I agree with what Lucy was just saying. Someone was going to deliberately misinterpret when Kobe Mainu is your best midfielder because you're referring to his age there yeah. and nothing else because yeah. um, he's fantastic. Um, I agree with everything you say about him. I mean, he's, Eric Ten Hag is a pragmatist, so probably he, he just works out. He did it at Ajax as well. He, he's not, even though he is Dutch, has a beard and is bald. He's not driven by some overarching philosophy of trying to sort of, we need to do this, we need these moving parts. He, he's a very good pragmatic manager. I mean, he he won at Ajax with players in their mid-30s who just happened to kind of fit uh, how that team could work. And I think um, uh, that's what he's doing now. And uh, Menu is just a revelation. I'm really worried they're going to play him in too many games and ruin him. Yeah. Because he's got all the things, doesn't he? He can take the ball in those tiny spaces. He seems to have that chess kind of brain of knowing all the things that modern central midfielders have to do, particularly with the ball being played from the back so often. You've got to be able to take it in that tiny space and, and want players to come onto you so there's space behind them rather than panic. And um, he's absolutely unbelievable. You know, you often hear this kind of hype about young players, but... Uh, with him, it, it seems like he really. I, I saw Ian Wright saying that he's he's got to be in the next England squad, and like on merit, um, that would be true, I would think. But it's just a question of, like you say, he's he's so chronologically young, even though in terms of maturity, he seems to be um, way ahead of people in their in their mid twenties who don't understand the game as well as he does. So I think that's a massive thing for them, um, and the, the more he can play not next to Casemiro. Um, the better. Like Casemiro will now be banned. Casemiro reminds me of me playing football at the moment. Um, serial winner. Um, <laughs> no, uh, like there, there's a point as you get older where you you become really good at blocking people and sort of using your body and kind of getting. There's a there's a window of about six months where you think well, this is this is doable. I can sort of be an obstacle, and then it goes, and you're you're you become even less mobile and you're just fouling people and you just need to go because you're a danger and it looks it looks and feels like that yeah sounds like you're describing my yeah sounds like you're describing my football career dave says that on that subject of um uh, the amount of injury time the luton fans just booed four minutes of extra time because it wasn't enough adjusting for inflation what are the new gasp ah uh, boo values for injury time you're right because you know in back in the day four minutes you were like oh we've got four minutes but now you need at least what nine or ten to be truly happy that you know you've got enough um and jim says with mick harford giving harry styles an extra strong mint at luton which 80s 90s footballers and modern pop stars would you like to see sharing confectionery uh, it's a good question that i haven't you know i haven't given anyone enough time to consider who, who would you like to see it was quite cute actually because pete drury had seen Mick Harford and, and really not had no idea that he was that Harry Styles was sat next to him. I think that was quite cute because Pete is just a great guy, but he's probably not interested in Harry Styles. Uh, I mean, I, I would I would like to see um, uh, who would I like to see? I'd like to see Morgan Gibbs White. I know it's an ex footballer, isn't it? That's how it's got to be a footballer from the eighties. I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse, isn't it? <laughs> I'd like to see Robert Allathorne giving Dua Lipa a Caramac. Which... <laughs> No, actually, that sounds, sounds awful. like a terrible euphemism, and I didn't. <laughs> yeah, but we've all thought this, Matt. 
<laughs> Apologise for everyone involved. Uh, to to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tottenham one, Wolves two. Um, Gary O'Neill Barney had a plan. They executed it perfectly. It wasn't smash and grab here, but for Vicario, Wolves would have won this even more comfortably. Yeah, he's a really good, smart, clever manager who obviously puts a huge amount of work into every game, comes up with these small tactical variations, which I can't actually analyse in this case, but I've heard him talking about it um, and I believe him because he has good results. And um, it, it just seems to work. He's, he seems like a... Uh, he's like a defibrillator. You like bring him in and suddenly everything's really coherent and works and his kind of Gary O'Neill magic has happened. Um, but uh, obviously people will now, um, because people were enthusiastic towards the idea of Ange Postacoglu, people will now have to be sceptical and say that that was wrong. But I, I think um, you know, Spurs essentially have the same bunch of players. It hasn't really changed to what he would like uh, the the is a magician. The kind of early kind of positivity of, of Ange Ball will only take you so far, uh, and I hope people don't rush to judge on the back of um, a few defeats. Um, I, do, I do fear Spurs might have a difficult time from here to the to the end of the season. Um, because just because they haven't, they. I mean, you're right. Ange hasn't had a lot of time, but even still, you do. They've sort of been limping in the last few weeks, even though they've won the last couple of games, haven't they? You know, they were. Brentford and Brighton were similarly one nil down at half time managed to turn it around. Partly because people in the Premier League are really good at formulating plans to counter whatever it is you're doing. And Spurs haven't had a chance to change the personnel from what what um how they started the season. So it's essentially the same, you know, it's like mate, that's how we play is fine. But um the teams Gary O'Neill will study you um and work out a way to counter what you do. And and that's I think what will is like basball right it's if plan a doesn't work just do plan a better yeah but but if if you are coming up against the best managers you've come up against against the best players you've come up against do you actually have to be better than do you have to have a plan b that isn't just plan a better yeah i i think that that spurs they always play play on the edge so it either tips in their favor or it doesn't more more often than not tips in their favor or, or it doesn't so there'll be games like that where they can't get back in back into it. But, you know, I, I think when we start talking about West Ham, I think if you ask the Spurs fans watching what they've watched this season with with with, with uh, Postacoglu, then they would rather see a team going for it. Um, and then when he gets a hold of the squad, like Barney says, and he can change it and and bring players in that he that he wants and who thinks will fit better with, I think they'll be even better. So I, I, I think everything, to be honest, is positive with Spurs. And I'm just looking at Twitter. Rob Collins has put, I know this doesn't really work on a podcast, but have any of your pal ever seen Neil Redfern and Ange in the same room? Now that <laughs> is why I love Ange. It must be because that, I live with him, basically. I live in the same oh, house as, as Ange okay. Postacoglu. There you go. Does Neil have a gruff, to the point voice currently these days? He does, doesn't he? Red Fino. He's not taking any shit, is he, Neil? Does if if you're giving Neil a dressing down over something, does does he like just stare at the floor and answer monosyllabically? Yeah. yeah. And call you Mike. Yeah. In the cupboard, yeah. Yeah. If he yes, if he thinks you're being a twat, does he call you mate? That's the real question. Um I did say this to Baz yesterday on the radio, but I had not heard of Jao Gomez. But I do feel that if Wolves built a footballer in a lab, he would be called Jao Gomez and he would be a solid 
diminutive central midfielder and he look he took his goals really well didn't he especially the second one it was a wonderful break um uh Fulham one Villa two um this win in Spurs lost puts Villa back in the top four and Barry they did it with a back four who hadn't played together without camera who you said last week was a, a real loss for them and I know Fulham really pushed them to, to, at the end but this is a great win for them yeah and I, I actually foolishly thought Fulham would win this game I I'm I, I can't figure Fulham out at all I think they strike me as being absolutely rubbish, but yet they don't seem to be anywhere near the uh, relegation zone. They're not in that conversation. They've won a couple of games, 5-0, uh, back-to-back. Uh, and yet, they, any time I watch them, they, they seem absolutely terrible. So, uh, I thought they might win this game. They probably should have won the game, but uh, it it was an excellent um, performance from a Villa team, which, as you say... Longley, Paul Torres uh, in as centre-halves. Not sure if they've played together before. Fulham, to an extent, shot themselves in the foot. Uh, The first goal they gave away was ridiculously cheap. A terrible throw-in from Anthony Robinson that put William in all sorts of bother. And... Tielemann picked out Watkins who scored and I think Ollie Watkins I suppose he'd be in the England squad anyway but now that Callum Wilson is going to be out till probably mid-April that that'll open the door for Ivan Tony, I suppose but um yeah very impressive from Villa and uh, in a game I thought they would not win mm. well that second finish was quite Shearer like actually from Watkins it was just like right I'm just gonna bang this in and I did and you know, well done to him. Only he'd only scored two in ten before this game, so uh, he needed those goals. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, I uh, will begin with Nottingham Forest victory over West Ham. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Jonathan says, was Mervyn Day at fault for the second Forest goal against West Ham? Yes, uh, whoever was in goal for West Ham was absolutely brilliant, Barry, be it Fabianski or Ariola. I mean, I've, I've lost trying to work that out, but it was quite interesting after we muddled him up last week that he had this absolutely, he just had a worldie, didn't he, Ariola? But for him, Forest would have smashed West Ham, despite David Moyes saying, it was a tight Premier League game afterwards. Yeah, it really wasn't a tight Premier League game. Um, and Forrest should have won pulling a cart. Uh, as you say, Alfonso Ariola had the, a brilliant game uh, to keep the score down. And there were banners being held up. Well, sort of more kind of homemade signs rather than banners being held up by disgruntled West Ham fans in the away end. Uh I have no idea whether David Moyes will be sacked or not. He does keep harking back to to what he's achieved with West Ham, and that's, I suppose, fair enough because his achievements with West Ham are quite impressive. But I think Barney alluded to this in an article he wrote about Moyes a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes people just want something different, and I I think West Ham fans uh, don't like the style of play or a sizable proportion of West Ham fans don't like the football they're playing under Moyes and would quite like to see someone else get the job and serve up more entertaining football yeah they haven't won since the 2-0 win over Arsenal on the 28th of December at Arsenal 
Um, they've got Brentford, Everton, Burnley coming up. But Lee says, what's the panel's view on entertainment versus results? It seems to me that there is now a demand by some fans to be entertained as well as for a club to achieve results on the pitch. What's causing the expectation? Higher ticket prices, he says. What do you think, Barney? Has there been a change or has, has this always been thus? Well, there's definitely been a change. Um, I don't think it's higher ticket prices because I think often uh, fans who go to the games are not the people who complain about entertainment value. If you if you win a game and you're in the stadium, that's incredibly entertaining, particularly if you only have 10% of possession. I think also it's tactically the way a lot of teams are now. Um, the first 10 minutes of, of um, Brighton against Sheffield United were just bizarre because Sheffield United basically didn't touch the ball. Um, and if you're if you're playing a team that's um, anywhere it plays that way, you you will just watch goalkeepers doing the opposition goalkeeper doing a Cruyff turn endlessly, and the opposition centre backs passing to each other because uh, that's tactically the way football is now. And if your team is not strong, West Ham are the only team to have made a decision to not have the ball from a position of strength. Moyes is the only manager who's not possession based, who's in the top, you know, nine in the Premier League, who has good players and could conceivably win another way. He's the last person playing like that. And it does mean you're basically going to end up spending a hell of a lot of time watching Lewis Dunk um, doing stepovers. And maybe if you're a West Ham fan, that's not what you want. So I think that's a part of it. Um, Also, people just keep talking about it and it ends up being a thing, doesn't it? We'll be talking about (laughs) something else in a bit, but now it's entertainment as though it's kind of... So, yeah, sort of, uh, uh, Saturday night afternoon, Saturday night television with Anton Deck, and you know we want we want entertain. We don't want David Moyes. He's not entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> so David Moyes could wear like a spangly jacket and come down a staircase in like to like some sort of saxophone music. Yeah, Mr. I mean Saturday I would. Be, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean I would be all. I mean, I mean I'm not a West Ham fan, so maybe. Some may see that as a gimmick, but I would certainly enjoy West Ham even more. You know, if there were sort of a few gunk tanks around for, you know, when players, you know, Calvin Phillips gets sent off, he has to go and sit in the gunge. All for me. <laughs> um, just um, on, on, on Calvin Phillips, Lucy, I know you know him well. And like, it must be hard to watch the start of his West Ham career for you. Yeah, I mean, I think you get you get players who need to play all the time. And I think, for example, Declan Rice is one of that. I watched him. I watched Rice come back from that trip to Dubai, and he wasn't in rhythm against Crystal Palace. He's just they, they just need to play all the time because that's the way that they feel that um, you know that they can maintain form. But I think from as far as Calvin's concerned, it's been an absolute disaster for him professionally going to City. I, I, I think he probably wrongly assumed that City bought him because they knew what type of player he was and 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 how they could use him. I really don't understand why um, Guardiola wanted him if he was never going to play him. He, he will not have turned into a bad player overnight. I know he had injuries. I don't know whether it was... I mean, it was it to keep him away from other top teams? Is it an admittance that Bielsa and Southgate can get the best out of him, but City can't? Because, you know, we've all seen Calvin play well. It's not just Leeds fans that have seen Calvin play well. So why why did City buy him if they didn't want what he can do um it's a really strange situation it's just so it's just he looks frustrated to me he looks like he, he's not match fit he's desperate to do well um and you know if you could sort of build a scenario which could be the worst possible scenario when you moved on loan somewhere i think that he's probably got that um 
at West Ham. But he'll, you know, I, I know him. I, I know that he'll he'll keep trying and he'll keep, you know, he'll keep working as hard as he can. But you know, I, I, the Man City thing really annoys me because why on earth did they? Why did they buy him? They knew what he did. What? Why did? Why did they buy him? Well, didn't Pep Guardiola kind of come out and more or less tacitly suggest that Phillips wasn't? intelligent enough to take his instructions on board and, and play but, to... But he's intelligent enough to take Bielsa's instructions on board. So is that Guardiola sort of saying that he, mm. he can't, you know, get what... This is this is my point. That, like, we have seen Bielsa get the absolute best out of, of Calvin. We've seen Southgate get the best out of, of Calvin. So Guardiola, why can't he get the best out of Calvin? Mm. It'll be interesting to see the next England squad because... On form, you know, you'd you'd, you'd have to. We talked about Kobe Maynard or even Ross Barkley was brilliant against yesterday. Like you'd yeah. have to se- select them, but it'd be interesting to see what what Southgate does. Nottingham Forest. I did want to mention a one year, you know, that that control, that first touch, is sort of elite centre forward play. That pass from Dominguez is fizzed in. It's a brilliant first touch. Uh, Forest have appointed former Premier League ref and current Gladiators ref Mark Clattenburg as the club's new referees analyst. Barney, I presume you're fully in favour of this. Um. <laughs> Yeah, um, get get bats in. Um, yeah, I mean that's a sign that it's one of those moments where everyone should just stop, look around, think about what they're doing, and say this this has gone too far. I was actually just googling. I was just there, there was a point. I remember seeing this extraordinary comment from someone close to Manchester City after Phillips had moved there. They said one of one of the problems it had. Um, is that he doesn't speak Spanish. So that it had taken him quite a longer time to settle into the city dressing room. And this kind of passed unnoticed. I just thought it's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard about Premier League football team, that that was, that was literally an, an obstacle. Um, and there was, a, there was a thing recently about him talking to, he talked to Bielsa for half an hour recently. Um, and the whole thing took place through Bielsa's translator which um also seems extreme it seems his entire career has been based around trying to speak spanish to people um while playing a series of clubs in the north of england um i, I do think probably the instructions that they also were giving him were a lot more simple and linear than what you'd get from guardiola i mean Bielsa's obsessed with running and, and that was essentially what he was told to do sorry mark clattenberg can't imagine jack greedish or on or John Stones are fluent in in Spanish. Oh, that 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 ref didn't know the yeah. analyst ref bit. I, I I know it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but they have opposition and analysts in clubs. So are you are Forrest looking at the ref that you've got for the next game? This is what he's like. This is what he does. This is what he doesn't stand for. This is the way. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to sort of see it, viewers. You know, maybe it isn't yeah. quite as stupid as it as it seems, but we'll, we'll soon see. It doesn't seem stupid at all. The referee seems to be the most important person on the pitch now. So, and given that you have a throw-in consultant, which is also important, and you have everything else, why would you not have someone analysing the referee? I think it's a, a really good idea, just incredibly boring, and I hate it. Yeah, I mean, I would just <laughs> like the idea that Mark Clattenburg, they just ask him afterwards if he'd have given a penalty, and he says, yes, I would, and then they just give him £10,000. Or he just starts doing gladiators, you know, and he gets Morgan Gibbs-White <laughs> on a travelator, or suddenly um, Ryan Yates is going to scale a climbing wall chased by Trojan as quickly as he possibly can. I, I do I do know that every time he speaks to the squad 
a someone holds up a sign saying "Voice of Mark Clattenburg." <laughs> that definitely happens. <laughs> All right, let's uh, rattle through the, the last few games. Um, Elliot says, how many blue cards would Mason Holgate have got for that tackle? I mean, it's so bad. You do wonder, Barry, if if, um, if three games is enough of a ban. Well, actually, it hadn't really crossed my mind until you mentioned it in the introduction. Uh, but it certainly deserves a three. And it's amazing that um, he didn't get a red until the, the referee had had another look at it and it was overturned, uh, the original yellow it was a shocking tackle, like absolutely shocking, and I'm not sure what motivated it. It's because he hadn't; t- they hadn't touched the ball by Brighton. They're in front of the home fans. The game had kicked off, and they just had no possession. And Matoma just had a slightly heavy touch on it, which I think probably fooled the referee. The, the ball kind of was there to be won, but he he went through <laughs> thigh height. <laughs> but it was because of frustration. It was because of the way Brighton were playing. I think. Um, he's apologised. You know, he's admitted that was horrendous. Um, and luckily, Matoma's okay. So. Yeah, really lucky. I mean, and, and, and actually for his teammates, you know, those nine outfield players that were left on the pitch have to spend an afternoon running and chasing a team who are really good on the ball. I mean, it doesn't help them, it doesn't help them at all, does it? I mean, it, it did feel, Lucy, like Brighton could have won 20 nil if they'd, if they'd wanted to in, in this game. I don't know how much more we can analyse. No, I, I just think that, that, all you can say about Sheffield United is they told, sold the two best players like a week before the start of the season and didn't have enough quality. And I don't think that that's anything that that Chris Wilder or Heckingbottom could have done about it. I don't. I, I just they're just not equipped for a season in the Premier League, and I, I don't think you can you can look at the manager and, and sort of say it's 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 their fault um, and they're going to go back down. And it's how much damage he's done. To the squad that they've got, and and obviously Chris Wilder is has shown his class in the championship with Sheffield United, whether he'll stay. But how much damage will be done between now and the end of the season? Newcastle two, Bournemouth two, uh, which is the last game in the running order, but really good game, Barry, and lots of really good bits. Matt Ritchie coming out of the wilderness, <laughs> Debravka slipping over that sort of odd. Fabian share is it a penalty? Isn't it a penalty? I really enjoyed this game. Yeah, um, Newcastle's home form has gone from being really, really good to middling to bad. Uh, they didn't have a fit striker for this game. Isaac and, and Wilson were both out. Um, you know, we, we've spoken at great length about Newcastle's injury woes. And uh, those woes must be really intensifying if, if even Matt Ritchie is getting a game because... The only time we've seen him this season is really kicking his heels, looking glum on the bench uh, and very much not being part of, of Eddie Howe's plans, no matter how bad things get. But um, he, he rescued Newcastle here, uh, initial bad header, um, the ball rebounded his way, lucky ricochet, and, and he smashed home from six inches out. And I believe it was his... First goal since 1982 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, since 2020. It was sad because nobody celebrated with him because I think someone went to get the ball and run back to the centre circle. So there was Matt Ritchie <laughs> having his moment. There was no one anywhere, anywhere near him. Matthew says, how many more pacey wingers does Dan Byrne have to go up against before it becomes torture? 
It, it is. I mean, you say, Barney, it's just a thing we talk about, like David Moyes' future. Dan Byrne, people running away from Dan Byrne is, <laughs> is a thing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's iconic, isn't it? And there's a certain way that he runs as he's chasing back, where he's slightly rocking from side. He's so physically large that he can't possibly be expected to keep up with these nimble-footed kind of super athletes. And he is, he's plugging away at it, but he needs to be released from his torture. Uh, uh, it's... It, there seems to be a goal down that side every week and a picture of Dan Byrne running backwards slowly. And uh, I've seen enough. Free Dan Byrne. <laughs> I really enjoyed uh, after, you know, that penalty where, so Fabian Scher is in an offside position, but he isn't active when the shirt pull happens. This is why the penalty was given. But Iriola afterwards said, look, the only reason Adam Smith pulled his shirt back is because he knew Fabian Scher was in an offside position, which is incredibly astute from Adam Smith with all that going on. I mean, he should definitely become a referee's assistant if he's got that sort of peripheral vision while he is defending a free kick. And uh, Semenyo's finish was brilliant as well. Lucy, sorry, can I ask? If you're in a position like Dan Burns, I don't know if you ever have been, where you're just getting skinned week in, week out, and there's not really anything you can do about it because you can't run any faster than you already are, does a party want to be dropped? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that he just needs to be taken out of the firing line. And I think even if he's, he's sort of annoyed initially when he doesn't play the next, he probably will benefit from it. You'd never sort of say, take me out, but you probably look pleadingly at the manager with your eyes. But yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, he's got so much value to that Newcastle team, hasn't he? Dan Byrne, set pieces, and, you know, when they, it, it's sort of like a lopsided back four, allowing Trippier to, to get forward. And and he's a leader as well. But I just think you need his values of leader needs a, a fully confident player. And I think at the moment, it, I, but you, do you know what doesn't help Dan Byrne? Not having Joel Linton in midfield, um, not having Willock and that sort of powerful running uh, that them two have got. I think you only miss um, Joel Linton and you see his value when he's not there and just physically when, when they win it back and when they lose it. And that is that would help the, the defence and, and help Dan Byrne. So there's quite a lot of things that have sort of contributed to, to him being exposed and, and isolated quite a lot. So Joel Linton is basically Newcastle's Ethan Pinnock. That's what we're saying. Yeah. I mean... I mean, Eddie Howe's not tall, so maybe Dan Byrne is looking longingly into Eddie Howe's eyes at training, but Eddie Howe's eye line is just not high enough, so he just he can't see the, the desperation. Uh, anyway, like Everton Palace tonight, uh, we'll talk about that game uh, and uh, uh, Roy Hodgson slash Oliver Glasner uh, on Wednesday's pod. Um, we'll, of course, talk about the uh, Brentford Man City game and the Champions League games on Wednesday as well. Good news for West Brom. A takeover has been agreed uh, with American businessman Shailen Patel, uh, who's purchasing an 87.8% stake. Uh, we chatted to the guys from Action for Albion on this podcast a while ago. Um, so delighted for them. Uh, there's an EFL pod next Tuesday. Uh, John says, on the subject of the speed with which people listen to this podcast, my default is times two. On the odd occasion, I find you at times one. You all seem plastered. I like to think you are. Um, <laughs> thank you, John. Appreciate it. I feel times two. Not really getting the nuance of the pod when you listen to it that fast. I mean, times, can you do times 32? What's the quickest you could listen to this? Just get it done. Get it over with. Yeah, it's, it's, I work so hard yeah. on my phrasing and my pauses and the, yeah. the notes between the notes. <laughs> Spend so long rehearsing and then it's just become a kind of high-pitched... Uh, Squeaking sound. Yes, I mean, the whole thing, as you know, this is, we do at least three rehearsals before we do the, the take for the pod. 
you know <laughs> sometimes the second rehearsal the first is the best one but you know this is all scripted it is worth you knowing that um and that'll do for today uh, thank you lucy thank you thanks barney cheers everyone bye thanks baz thank you football weekly is produced by joel grove our executive producer is daniel Stevens. this is the guardian 